Tonight, we are going to look at, um, see, Greg, I think I've come up with a title, a lifestyle discipleship is what we're going to look at. And we're going to look at Jesus teaches his followers. Um, discipleship is a common term uh, in church circles. You don't hear it used as much outside. Um, there are several um, arenas that the terms are used uh, academics and athletics you know i think of like if you follow the seasonal sports in america like nfl there's a phrase that said like uh it lists these coaches that are disciples of bill belichick and so they're literally like they were assistant under him or trained under him and it's this tree of of people you know that have been taught under this one teacher um you'll see it in academics as well some who's teaching in different universities and they've learned under this person and so there's just this this uh master or one who's more successful and those proteges or those who have taught or, or learned underneath them and so the bible when it's speaking of it it just talks about how jesus taught his people. And, and the thrust, as we know from the Great Commission, is that we're to go into the world and make disciples. We're to baptize. Uh, we're to teach them that they could follow all of what Jesus had commanded. And so the Holy Spirit saves, and then he empowers his people to be a part of the discipleship process, which I find very fascinating, very interesting. So I do have my phone right here, and I'm going to put it to bed right now. So there we go. So not that anybody would call me while I'm teaching, but I've had relatives literally from the front row, not my wife, call me or actually they were sending me texts. So anyway, not that any one of you would, some of you would. So anyway, (laughs) um, so anyway, the discipleship thing, I've always been, um, Leery of programs. Uh, programs have their plus. They're structured, they're systematic, they're very orderly. Um, they're borderline absolute in a sense because they've got to walk you through it. This is how you disciple. And, and maybe some of you have went through certain discipleship programs and, and maybe you can even you would know that the strength. Um, the, the challenge too, though, is you can like much of Scripture, you can understand it intellectually and depart from it practically, not actually live it out. You can just have it resident in the memory, but not a, a transforming power that's influencing your life on a practical and a daily basis. And so myself, I just like to study how did Jesus disciple his people? You know, we know historically you're dealing with the Roman Empire, the Greek was before. And the time is kind of emerging, what we refer to as the Greco-Roman era. And at that time, you know, there were universities, there were gathering places. We know Paul um, was in Athens, uh, the Areopagus, which was the gathering place. We know Paul, um, you know, he was invited to speak. So there were these kind of classrooms, university settings. But if you notice that Jesus really didn't put them down, nor did he engage with that, nor did he use that as his practice. What was his common environment that the scriptures record that he taught in? What was the most common environment? 
What's that? Well, that was the audience, you know, but that, yeah, the whole room. But the, the atmosphere was natural, right? Whether it would be like exiting the gates of the city and, you know, speaking of, you know, um, he is, the, you know, the, the vine or speaking of the vineyards or perhaps, you know, um, he would be speaking of, you know, the light of the world. And, you just, and I just, you just see how he just uses natural things. I, he, he spoke one of the most powerful parables, the introductory parable, which was kind of the guideline for interpreting other parables, the parable of the sower. It's a natural thing. It's not an academic thing. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that he was opposed to it. That's not the case at all. He just took the everyday practical real world stuff and said the kingdom of God is like one who broadcasts seeds. And, and the, the youngest child would be able to take that analogy and understand the, the visual representation of it. And the most studied you know, um, rabbi could also take that and chew on the depths of what that says, that, that parable. You see what I'm saying? And so the reason I wanted to go over this and, and begin this way is we have a perception in contemporary uh, conversation, uh, kind of our socioeconomic ladder that we don't acknowledge, but it's there. We, we speak of um, higher learning as more with more sophisticated in the language, more uh, more syllables, more uh, academic uh, presence. You know what I mean? Is that not true? It's just you know that's smarter. You, know, you have to be a smarter pe- person to know that. And I agree, you have to have a little more in the functional brain space than I've got to be able to you know work as uh, say a doctor or a surgeon or a professor. But we want to be very careful that we don't elevate the world's study at the expense of the Lord's teaching. You see, he taught very simply for you and I, and not to in any way bring it down to our level, but actually to teach us to, to see in a new, whole new way. I meet many people that feel they're not smart enough to study the Bible because they don't know the Hebrew. They don't know the Greek. Well, neither do half the people that claim they do. Neither do half the people that say they teach. Oh, yeah, well, in the Hebrew, it means this. You say you, it means that because you read that somebody said that it means that because you don't read Hebrew. How often do you hear me quote and say, this is what it means in Hebrew, this is what it means in Greek? Not very often. I don't know Hebrew and Greek. It's all Greek to me. So it's like, I have to go, okay, I'll give you a reference. Like, hey, I, you'll find in Thayer's uh, dictionary, you'll find here, this is the explanation of this word. And I'm saying all this to say, please don't let the enemy somehow intimidate you that the word of God is just so hard to grasp. It's actually not. And, and it's not to be in any way... Um, you know, just kind of seen as just for simpletons. It's simple, but it, it unveils life-changing truth. And so as you study and then you engage, it's not, I don't look at it. I, don't, I look at the academic. I don't refer to that as a higher intellect. Academic is different. You know, this, the Lord spoke in a certain way and he taught his disciples in very practical ways. Why do I mention that to functionally, as I know, for the most part, a group of disciples. They're already doing it. It's like, so like, great, Dan, we come to a class to figure out what we're already doing, you know. Well, there's a problem if you've already got it figured out because you probably don't have it figured out. (laughs) 
if you think you haven't figured it out, you probably don't have figured it out. That's what I've figured out. Because the more we're moldable, shapeable in the Lord's hands, the more he'll teach us. And you're going to see when you study Paul's life, you study Moses' life, you study Joshua's life, you study any personality that you can gain detail about from the scripture, you know, those who continued to mature were continually shaped by the Lord. They continued to learn. They didn't get there. They didn't arrive. Paul, in the last of his days, is saying to Timothy, send me what? Do you remember? Parchments. Send me my books. Send me my cloak. I'd be good to connect with Mark. See, so even in the end when he's locked up and he knows his departure is soon, He's still wanting to grow. He's still learning from the Lord, even in captivity, even in in, in imprisonment. So we all want to be able to be open and, and, you know, teachable, even as Greg prayed as he closed out our time in worship by way of music, that we'd be taught. And so let's pray that that would be the case. God, as we approach your word tonight, we're, (coughs) excuse me, we're thankful, Lord, that we can be very much at ease uh, with sobriety and in a seriousness of mind. And yet with a confidence, God, that you who began a good work, you'll be faithful to complete it, that you will walk us through your word. God, thank you that you tell us in the gospel of John that you, Holy Spirit, will guide us in all truth. You would bring to our remembrance the things that Jesus has said, that you will convict us and even the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so tonight, even, Lord, may we just gain a a greater understanding, a more clear view of you. Lord, may we see the work you're doing in our lives, and may we be eager for that work to continue, God. And so, Lord, lead us through, walk us through your word tonight, that we may take hold of it, that we could even be used by you to encourage others to do likewise. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's begin in John chapter 1. And I want to start with the disciples, a few of them. So we'll begin there in verse 19. And we do have a disciple there. We actually also have another uh, indication of this concept of discipleship. Beginning in verse 19 of John chapter 1. We read, now this is the testimony of John. Now this is John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. Verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you, that, you may give an, that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? So we know that these men were from the Pharisees. They were um, positionally, they had a, a, a responsibility, disciples with responsibilities, if you would, uh, priests and Levites. So they, they sent guys that are learning from them, hey, go find out who this guy is that's capturing all this attention, this this. John the Baptist guy. So you can tell they're quizzing him. And and John replies now in verse 23. John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, 
as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And so John replies to him, as you can see there, Jesus was not physically among them. We can gather that from the verse 29 as we go to that. He's in the area. He's, in, he's among them as a nation, among them as a people. John actually doesn't know who Jesus is at this point, as you're going to see as we continue to read along. But uh, Bethabara is another word um, for Bethany. Bethany was, um, if you're, the, the reference we're given um, says uh, beyond the Jordan. So you'd have the Jordan River Plain. And then as you go up to Jerusalem, you most often would go through Jericho uh, along the old highway. And then you'd come a couple miles before Jerusalem, you'd go through Bethany. And so this, that's kind of where this all took place. Let's pick up now with uh, the continued conversation. You'll see how this flows. It begins in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained upon him. I did not know him, but he was sent. He, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. <coughs> Interesting little bonus for us there. In that context, it seems that John has this realization that Jesus is the one when he baptized him, in this, and we know the Spirit descends upon him. That was the validation. In other words, that was the sign that God said, you'll know who it is. And I mention that because as you've studied in the Old Testament and you've even seen some of the New Testament um, content, you've noticed, I'm sure, that the prophets didn't always understand what was going down. There was many times they were were voicing because the prophets of the Old Testament were literally men who brought forth the word of God. And so into a given situation, even at that time, but some of their prophecies were, the fulfillment was multifaceted. It was perhaps for the nation Israel at that moment. It was messianic, so it spoke of a later time. It's judgment sometimes where it spoke of a time to come. And then messianic, speaking of the Messiah to come and the fulfillment then. So when they would speak it, you know, I don't know, sometimes we subconsciously think they know what it means. No, they don't. Matter of fact, Peter said that the prophets of old long for the day that you and I live in because they long to see this thing they're declaring because they're not seeing it. They know what's going to happen. But many of them had that insight and perception to know they would physically depart the planet before the prophecy that they spoke of would be fulfilled. Well, I mention that because, you know, God has this approach to discipleship and teaching his people that we, we, we learn as we go. 
He gives you, and this is essential, I believe, enough information to be obedient and enough information to be observant. So John the Baptist observed and then he understood, but he had to be obedient before he would have something to observe. Does that make sense? So there's an element that applies in our lives as well as we're prompted and directed that element of obedience. When God prompts you to serve in some way or to step out in faith in some manner, there's always more unknown than known, correct? There's always gonna be more questions and concerns and what ifs. But he gives you enough to step out in obedience. And when we step out in obedience, he, that's when we'll have enough information to be observant as well. He'll, we'll see his hand, we'll see his, his presence, his mark, his um, verification of this calling, if you would. <laughs> We're gonna move on now as we look a little more in, uh, let's see, verse 35, we're going to pick up, and it's going to go from John the Baptist to Jesus. Verse 35, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. So let's break that down just a little bit. We're approaching this study and this time in the word with a pre-stated topic of discipleship. How does Jesus do it? What was the practical ways he taught those who would follow him. And so we hear, here we see two disciples that are following John the Baptist. John the Baptist was unique. He, he wasn't, he didn't fit in the religious package, so to speak. He was one as calling in the wilderness. He, he dressed a little funky, right? Camel's hair and chowing down on grasshoppers. And, you know, he was just, outside the norm. And when you're in a religious system, you tend to notice the system. And if you're really like realizing this is more system than spirituality, then many people will say, you know, I'm done with this. And I wonder about these two, if they were like, you know what, I'm just curious about this guy because he doesn't fit the system. He is not this. But you'll notice they were looking for something else. They weren't looking for a person. And so when John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God, they turned from following the person, John the Baptist, and turned to follow Jesus. And I think there's a parallel for us in our, our own lives. There's times where we're searching for something. You, I, uh, we, we all have what I call a religion of reference. It's what you were born into. It may be, for me, it was Mormonism. For Kim, it was the Jehovah Witness system. And so it's just what you naturally go to when you have what we could call maybe a spiritual need. Uh, maybe it's for you want to, someone's going to get married. Maybe someone passed away. Maybe it's just something in our culture that the church would be involved. You gravitate to your religion of reference. Until at some point in some age, you say, yeah, 
I don't know that that's the right one. And then you hit kind of the pause button and then you start to search. And, and I can't help but kind of apply that to us even as we're searching because as John the Baptist was longing to know his calling because he knew it was very unique, as his disciples are wanting to follow him, they're learning, but they're also willing to go where he's instructing them. So whatever your searching was or is, realize you're looking for Jesus. And let's look at what he says. He said to them in verse 38, what do you seek? And you notice they didn't really answer him. They didn't. They just had another question. They said, uh, where are you staying? That's what we often do when we aren't sure, correct? What do you seek? Um, I, I don't know. Where are you staying? You know, they, they weren't really clear. When I first started going to church, and people would say, well, why are you going to church? I my wife's going. That would be the honest answer because that was really what, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> helped me to take that first step. But that's not enough to keep me going. You know what I'm saying? There was more. And I'm like, I didn't even know what I was seeking. I just, I wanted to say, I wanted to get my life right. I, I wanted to say certain things that I just popped in my head. I really didn't know what I was seeking. And so it's interesting because it's even here that they don't indicate, we, we want to know if you are the Messiah, the one we should look for. Are you the one to, to redeem Israel, to redeem humanity? Are you going to save Israel? Are you going to get rid of the Romans? We don't even say that. They're just like, you know, where are you staying? And, and can, you, can you relate? I, 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 I love the way Jesus handles it because not only do they say that, you know, he replies to them, come and see I think it's twofold as well uh, for our application and our study tonight. Come and see where I'm staying. You know, come and see. And also, come and see what you're looking for. Because they didn't realize that he is who they were looking for. They were looking for a lot of things, I'm sure. Um, we know from the makeup of the disciples, they had a perception of how the politics of their country would change when the Messiah come. It's why they were a little confused sometimes the way Jesus handled things because they had this perception of a Saul figure, meaning head and shoulders above the other leaders, a man of stature and power. This Messiah would come and cast off these Romans and he would be a a typical physical figurehead type of leader. But Jesus was meek and lowly. He was of average stature. There was nothing about him that gave any indication. He wasn't short like Zacchaeus. He wasn't tall like Saul. He was just, the Bible says he was of no reputation. There was nothing about his appearance that would make him stand out. And, and when he engaged with the Pharisees, he did it boldly and directly, but with compassion. When he engaged with the Romans, he had more conversation and compliment with centurions and Romans almost then it seems like he did with the Jews. When he's speaking of faith, when he's speaking of their you know, dis- disciplines and various things. So you would go, is this the Messiah? He isn't fitting this political perception of how he's gonna remove our Roman problem. So when he says, you know, come and see where I'm staying, I think they're able to see him in real life. Because where you're staying is different than where you're going for most people. It wasn't for Jesus. When you're going out to a show, you're a different person. 
when you're going to church, you dress different than when you're going to Walmart, most of you, because I've seen you in both places. <laughs> so you see what I'm saying? When we're going somewhere, and I don't think it's wrong, you, you just you put, put it on a little differently. But where you're staying is where you, that's who you are. Your dog, your cat, your kids, your spouse know you different than anybody else because that's who you are. And he's saying, come, because this is where I'm staying. You just, just come, you should come with me and see where I'm at. So it says, and let's continue on. We begin, we see here in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, the anointed one. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone or the rock. He first found his brother, we see of Andrew. He went and found Simon. That's a quality of a disciple. That's someone who's seeking, and, and they just want to share. Um, Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, even though he made a very bold statement. I think it's a statement of curiosity more than um, confidence. Come and see, we have found the Messiah. I Probably, on my own speculation, in English translation, we'd put a question mark, exclamation point. Have we? This, could this possibly be the one? Now, when you say that to Peter, you probably know you're going to get a response. Do you think Peter was a little different than Andrew, to Andrew? Because Peter's kind of humorously defined as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. He, he tends to speak spontaneously and quickly, and then you back up. I mean, he's the one that took Jesus aside and rebuked him because Jesus declared what was going to happen with the crucifixion. So here, Andrew says just boldly to Peter. Peter, he, he, he responds. Seek and you will see. What you see, you will share. So we see what happened with these guys. They just said, where, where are you staying? So now they're just briefly around Jesus. The, the previous passage we looked at said that it was the 10th hour. That either means by Roman time, which reckoned by our comparable to ours at midnight, it would have been 10 in the morning. Or if John is referring to Jewish time, beginning at 6, that would be 4 in the afternoon. So they've spent some time with him. And then he goes, uh, Andrew goes and gets his, his brother Peter. And it's seek and you will see, and what you see you will share. It's not a method, it's a lifestyle. And I believe that's one of the biggest keys and the biggest, it's not a difference, but it's, it's an important thread that should be woven through systematic discipleship that's very um, maybe disciplined and there's a lot of a, of a program flavor to it, which I could say I'm not opposed to it. But then lifestyle is relational, and you got to have that woven together. It can't be separate. A, a lifestyle that's undisciplined um, leaves people confused. A lifestyle or a, a, a approach that's very strategic, sterile, and absolute seems to be lifeless. But with the two together, you see what I'm saying? 
So it's not a method, it's a lifestyle. It's true, you seek, and what you see, and what you see, you share, that is true in your lifestyle. It's true with housing, right? You find a house, and you have a friend that's looking for a house, and there's a house next to the house you got, and it's a good deal in a good neighborhood, what do you do? You see it, you share, you tell them. It's true with food. It's true with jobs. If you know, It's true with friends. It's true with truth, with hope, with love. We see it, we share it. It shouldn't be complicated. It shouldn't be uh, hindered by fear, by other concerns. If you see someone who needs something and you can help, you know, don't let your mind interfere with what you know needs to be. You see what I'm saying? There's just times you, you just gotta, it's just a lifestyle. It's just, and yes, sometimes you share with somebody and they, ah, ah I don't like that area. Okay. Ah, I ate there once before. Their food's no good. Okay. I don't get, I don't get hurt about that. Like, whatever. I just think, loser. <laughs> I'm thinking, I liked it or I wouldn't have shared it with you. You don't like it. Fine. We just see life different. No big deal. Moving on to the next subject, whatever, you know. And so I used to be a little more like argumentative. Now I'm like, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, hmm, hmm, you don't have taste buds. So, <laughs> or whatever. I just kind of rolled it a lot differently, you know. So, but you see that you're seeking before you know you're seeking. You're seeking God before you know you're seeking God. David Roper, uh, who was a pastor, a very influential man in my life uh, as a young Christian, he shared it this way, and it just stuck with me for over 30 years. Our longing for him is actually his calling to us. So we're responding, thinking that we're initiating, but in reality, we're simply responding to his, we, we say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I just knew I needed to get my life straightened out and started going to church. We have ways of describing it. We don't realize it was him wooing, loving, calling, nurturing, bringing us to him through situations and circumstances, some of them difficult. And so what we realize as we go along, think, man, we are, we are seeking, but we're actually responding. And as we're seeking him, we're seeing things like it's just he just starts opening our eyes. You know, I've noticed that when you won't look, you won't see. Deep concept by Dan. You know, if you won't look, you won't see. And you can share something with somebody and they won't look. And they may remain cynical. They may remain difficult or whatever their disposition is. Because they just won't look. And it's frustrating to you because it's obvious. But you can't get keyed up over it. You just got to admit, okay, you, you look, you see. And what you see, you share. And I just think that's such a, so such a fundamental, simple, not strategic, it's just a lifestyle. And it's so refreshing to live that way because you don't have to identify, well, the Lord showed me this, or the Lord told me this. You, you just live. You just live with a sense of, you know, this is how he's directing me. I, I kind of have one simple guideline that I, I try to keep fresh in my mind. I've shared it with you before, but... It applies in all these areas, especially if we consider how these guys are responding and, and, and following the Lord. Just know what no is. Does that make sense? Lord, should I do this or do that? You prayed that. I've prayed that. I've got no answer. I've got no audible response. I have had no voice, or I mean no verse 
enlightened and amplified. I didn't hear some song on the radio that confirmed it through this, my devotion of the day and was verified of my study in the end of the day. You know what I mean? Just, I got nothing. So what do I do? Well, you engage your logic. You, you question, am I fearful or faithful? But the one thing you want to know is what no is. See, if you know he didn't say no, then you go. I've encouraged many people that way. Listen, did God say no? Well, no, I know he didn't say no. Nike up. Just do it. Just get started, and he'll direct you. It's like we're sitting in this room, and we have one, two, those are two doors. There's four, five Six, seven ways by which we can exit. Some of you can go one of those three windows even. So we have multiple ways to go out of here. And we're like, okay, Lord, which way do you want me to go? I just want to make sure I go out the right way. And, and he may say, don't take that one. Okay, I'm not going to go backstage because that wouldn't help me. Okay, Lord, I get it. Which one do you want me to take? That's a no. I know, but which one? Which one do I take? I don't think he has to tell you anymore. Pick one <laughs> and just go. We want, it's like this, oh God, your will is a needle in the haystack and I just don't know where to go or what to do. That just doesn't fit the character of God. Can we agree? The character of God who is so gracious and kind and directs our steps. And there's times, yes, you're going to go, I don't know, I don't want to take the wrong door, but just start, start moving. Okay, Lord, I don't know. I've had this prayer so many times. This one time I had to make a really critical decision and I had a month to make the decision and I laid it before the Lord for a month. And I got up early and was like an hour before normal and walking the neighborhood praying. And it was a critical decision. I didn't want to mess it up. It was a family decision and it was just a lot of self-induced stress. So I just got up and prayed more the whole month. And had beautiful prayer time, but no, but the Lord somehow just wasn't listening to the key question. Had great fellowship, but he's just not, he's just not paying attention, I'm thinking, or whatever. So I'm down to the last week, and I got to make this decision. It literally has to be made like on Thursday. And on Tuesday, I'm like, Lord, I'm, and so I'm like, maybe I should fast. What else do I do? And I'm, like, I'm not hearing from you. And then Wednesday, I'm like, Lord, I, I haven't. I don't know. I haven't heard from you on this anything. It's like you're silent. And so I'm just, I'm just going to take this step, this direction, because it's just kind of how I've been leaning, and I don't know if I'm leaning the right way. So between now, Wednesday morning, and tomorrow, I'm trusting that you'll, you'll redirect me if I'm going the wrong way. And Thursday morning, I get up, like, Lord, I, I got nothing. And, and I'm, I'm walking, I remember it vividly. It was on Garden Street in Boise, and there's a church because I'm coming back to our, our house. We were on Irving. And as I'm walking back up, I get goosebumps telling the story, but I'm walking by that church, and I'm like, Lord, I just, I'm going to stick with this decision. I, I, I feel like I, I don't know if I haven't listened. I know you're faithful. And it's almost like he audibly said, yeah, I'm, I, I just love the last month hanging out with you. I've just loved this last month together. It's been great. Whichever way, whichever way, I'm with you. Either way, this is not a in my will, out of my will. I'll bless you either way, either way. And I'm like, that was all, it was wonderfully refreshing and strangely confusing. 
It's like, well, <laughs> but, and he was just showing me, you make it too complicated. I will lead your steps. You know, commit your ways unto me and I will direct your steps. Okay? Like, oh, it, it, but I don't, here's the thing, that you have this problem. You know I have this problem because I've just shared it. It's not that I don't trust the Lord. I don't trust me. I don't trust my perception. I don't trust my faithfulness. I don't trust my conclusions. Oh, Lord, well, you know, with the influx of people here in the mountain home area, if I got a little better fishing boat, I could start a fishing ministry. Hmm, we could reach people with a fishing boat. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I just don't trust me. I'm just like, Lord, I just don't trust me. I, I trust you. And ultimately, that's the key to discipleship at, at every level is learning to trust the Lord. They said, he said to them, what do you seek? Where are you staying? Because they they're, they're working it out. And we're in the same way. Okay, we're, we're, I, I got to work this out. And so my encouragement to you is he is faithful and you're genuine and real. And we see even from these guys there, they're kind of working it out as they go. Now look at this next section. I'll take what I've laid out as a concept and in a, in a, uh, we've seen as a reality. And we'll look at some different person, some people within it, beginning in verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. So I've had uh, the blessing just a couple weeks ago. I was in Galilee, the region of Galilee, on a trip to Israel. And knowing some of you have been, you know what it's like to go from two miles outside of Jerusalem, or just outside the, the Old city, cross that road, cross Jericho to Galilee. It gives a whole new meaning to barren and wilderness. I thought we had wilderness. You think of wilderness, jagged rocks, beautiful lake thrown in somewhere, um, rugged hillside, timber, brush, just tough stuff. No, no, that's pretty. Wilderness in the biblical description is barren. Barren and rugged. I'll show some. I'll share with you guys later. We took the old Jericho, <coughs> excuse me, highway and tour buses. I would think twice about taking a suburban, four-wheel drive suburban on this particular road, and we're cruising along in fifty-foot tour buses, and looking down over the edge. And if you've ever went to Anderson Ranch Dam to cross the dam on the dirt road, that's a freeway. That is a, it's like paradise. He's like, oh, just a little, you know, step off the hill. No big deal compared to this. I'll show you pictures of it. I say all that because we read in scripture, just like here, we know that he was in Bethany, Bethara, and now we're reading just a few verses further that he had it. He just, he was going to Galilee. It's like 40 miles through rugged wilderness. You know, the, um, you know, uh, gosh, it was the, uh, well, my brain will catch up to my thoughts here, or the two will collide or something. Um, the Good Samaritan. What road was that on? Road to Jericho. And the, the Good Samaritan, you know, it was, was robbed. I mean, it, was, it was a dangerous place to be. It was a dangerous pathway because of the ruggedness of it. The, the routing oftentimes changed because it was oriented around water sources. You had to have water source. It's that, it's that rugged. And so here they just go. And you, I know you're, I've read this over the years. 
And then you start putting association. You know, the closest thing I could tell you is to burn all the vegetation between here and Boise on the foothills, all of it. And then let it just dry out and nothing grow, not even this sissy sheet grass we get every year. Everything's just barren. And then walk up and over, up and over, up and over to Boise just because it says they was in Bethbara and then he went to Galilee. You see what I'm saying? You know, it's a different reality when you start putting this together. Now he goes and they go with him. It says that he wanted to go to Galilee. So there was a reason he wanted to go. There was something in him. And it says that he found Philip. Philip wasn't displaced. He was seeking Philip before Philip was seeking him. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, now, you see what he's doing. He's building these disciples. He's calling them. He found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good Come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, do you see this part? Come and see. Once again, come and see. You just, you just put yourself where you can see. Nazareth is an interesting place as well. Did you guys go to Nazareth? Okay, so did you notice Nazareth is, it's, uh, it's just kind of, it's, it's, it's quite a ways up the hill from the shore of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of a, King Hill, Bruno, um, Grandview kind of town, so to speak. There's no major commerce. There's not a significant trade route. There's no outstanding natural beauty. It's nice, but nothing to cause people to go, we want to build here. And, and that's where he's from. It just, it, it's just, a. have got <clears throat> pictures of a, they've uh, found the area they think he lived in. And then they've, <coughs> excuse me, have uh, kind of reenacted it. So there's an organization that has put it together and they reenact the lifestyle. And I've got some videos I'll share at some point, you know. But I'm saying all that because Nazareth was just a nowhere place in so many practical references. And when you consider some of the area of Capernaum and uh, even type, well, Tiberius, not so much, but uh, definitely Jerusalem. And that's where he's from. So Nathaniel's like, really? Nazareth? Seriously? And so, you know, we can see what Philip says. Come and see. Let's catch this next part. <coughs> I think I can make it. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite, indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Very unique engagement between Nathaniel and Jesus. Can we agree? Because he's saying to him something different in speaking in a way that's revealing who Jesus is in a sense. I mean, he has a, a prophetic knowledge. He has an awareness that he doesn't give to the other disciples when they're called. And I mention that because Jesus knows Nathaniel. And Jesus knows you. 
He knows each one of us perfectly. And so as he's speaking to Nathaniel, he's saying to him, you know, hey, I, I knew you before you were, and when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I got a, got this special sauce. It's not McDonald's special sauce. It's some other stuff. So I take a break here. It, uh, it's, uh, it's illegal in 50 state. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just a throat spray. Um, Jesus knows Nathaniel, and Jesus knows you. And so he speaks to Nathaniel. I just, I've always loved this story because, you know, Nathaniel answered and said, Teacher, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. It was so special to, to Nathaniel that it wiped away. Remember, he started with questions. What was his question? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet here he speaks. So all, all of a sudden, so like the blinders were removed. He's like, you, you've got to be the living God. You've got to be the Messiah that I've heard of. And Jesus is like, that's <laughs> <I have> nothing. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. But he, excuse me, Nathaniel was so touched. And Jesus answers and says to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So Nathaniel <coughs> excuse me, this great picture um, of the, the calling God has on your life. You know, you know what you read a lot about in Nathaniel. You, you guys remember reading First and Second Nathaniel? And, uh, you know, the, the, the journeys of Nathaniel in the New Testament, you know. He kind of disappears, doesn't he? I mean, really, we don't, we, we, you know, and when you can think, when you think of like, you know, Peter and John, we read a lot about. And, and, and the reason I mention it that way is because it shows God knew Nathaniel perfectly, and he didn't need him to be the number one apostle or the number one spokesman. He just knew him personally, and he spoke to him in such a way to encourage him. And Nathaniel was willing to see. He was willing to receive, to hear. I would have loved to, I, that's one moment I would love to see on tape when Jesus said, well, for one, in, in Israel indeed, in whom, in Israelite, there's no deceit, because it's, some translations say no guile, you're not, I think of it this way, you're not a Jacob. You know what I'm talking about? Of the Old Testament? He was a, he was a deceiver. He was this kind of a rat, in my opinion, but, you know, I have to balance that with Scripture. It's like he just, he was a used car salesman almost. You know what I'm saying? He just was an angler. And so it's like, Nathaniel is not that. There's no guile. There's, there's no pretension. There's no facade. There's no hypocrisy. He's, a, he's a, what we call a, a down-to-earth guy. Just a, He lives it as it is, probably compassionate, kind, respectful, but no show. He wasn't putting it on. And when Jesus said, and you're, there's no guile, there's no deception in you. And I'm sure he's kind of, I, I think this, it's just my own speculation, so it's of no value, but I think he's like, because, oh. you know, no one believes that. I mean, you know, people always just accuse and different things. I'm sure he felt, man, no one, no one knows me. And here Jesus says that. And then he says, before Philip called you when, I, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
You weren't there. I mean, think what's going through his head. But he, notice what I mentioned earlier, he gives you enough information to be obedient and also enough information to be observant. So now he, Nathaniel's realizing you weren't there, but you know me. You know me inside. You know me. And, and physically, you know me. You know, you know me. And, and he's so excited. He's like, you're the one. And then Jesus says, you know, as you've seen, man, that's nothing. This is not the end of the show. This is not, your life is going to change. Is that true? From the time you encountered Jesus and started to follow him, has your life changed? Have you seen things? I, I, I know we could take the time and, and share different stories. We had time to think about it and come back the next week and just share how we used to be like this and think like this and act like this. And the, 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 the born-again, regenerate spirit, the new life in us, we now are transformed and changed because we're willing to see, willing to follow, and willing to share what we see and continue on the journey. Do you know the one who disciples, like you, be, you may be discipling someone. Sometimes the discipler is only about four hours ahead of the disciplee. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're just learning as you go. You haven't got it all. There's no, you haven't got it all figured out. And the more we're in the hands of the potter and shaped to be vessels for his purposes, the more we realize he, even as he has formed us in one season, he's reshaping us for this season, that we can act and walk and move in his humility to where we can have that influence and presence and encourage people to to walk with him. Our big thing, my big thing with Kim and I, um, maybe it's because of our background I hinted at, you know, we just want people to not notice us as much as they know Jesus. I just want people that we encounter as a church and those who come through the doors 23 years, people have come through these doors and gathered in his name. And my prayer is that they, when they leave here, they have a closer relationship with him because that, that, that's going to change their lives. I may be remembered, I may not. You may be remembered, you may not. But they will always have the Lord. And so that's been our goal of teaching the word, of engaging and building relationships that we can, we can put him literally at the center point. Because Jesus is the center point of 12 guaranteed dysfunctional misfits called apostles. They are, I don't even know how to describe them, other than they just, they set the standard and we followed it every generation since. Um, they're arguing just before his crucifixion over who's going to be the greatest. Um, they, one of them takes him aside and corrects him because, you know, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm just like, is that the best I could do in three years with these guys? <laughs> you know, but the Lord's totally different. The Lord's totally different. He doesn't say that's okay. He corrects them. You'll see in those examples I've mentioned. But if you read Hebrews 11... God's valuation on your life efforts and what you do with what he's given you is different than your valuation. You know, he says of Abraham, he's a man of faith, and we go, he's a flake. He threw his wife under the bus. He didn't, you know, but guess what? Abraham was a man learning faith and became a man of faith. Just like you and I, we're learning faith and we become people of faith. And so God sees this process of purification, this work of sanctification that's taking place in our lives. We as people tend to see the failures. 
We define people by maybe their mistakes or remember them by what they've done wrong. And the Lord's got a different way of approaching it. So when the Thomas says, I, I doubt it, you know, you know, he's, he's kind of nicknamed what? Doubting Thomas. I think a better description would be honest Thomas, on, truthfully. Unless I can see the marks in his side and the marks in his arms and hands, I, I can't believe. He, he's just honest. And it sounds like he's doubting, but he's kind of saying the same thing the others weren't saying, truthfully. So anyway, I want, I'm going to close out with our time tonight. I've got a whole other section that we're going to cover, but um, time and voice have come to an end. <laughs> so we're going to go to Psalm 119 and pray. Psalm 119, we'll, pray, we'll read that tonight. You guys should be sharper on your Bible because I just said we'd read Psalm 119. There's 175 verses. So um, Psalm 119, let's turn to verse 33. We're going to look at verse. I'm just going to pray through verses 33 to 37. We'll read it and pray at the same time. Let's just approach with an attitude of prayer. God, we just thank you for your word tonight. And to be able to almost casually but confidently just look into how you train us and teach us and strengthen us and equip us and draw us near to you. And I would ask God that that would continue. I know it will, for it's your desire. And may we um, just own and, and take hold of what we see here from your word, the request to teach me, O Lord, the way of your statues, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Well, that's our request, our petition. May you work that out this week, this night, the days to come. Guard us from ourselves and our own wandering eyes and own mindsets. Reshape us and reform us, Lord God, in a way that glorifies you. And God, we, we just have your heart, your view, your understanding when it comes to people in our lives, that we would have empathy and compassion, that we would have patience and understanding, that we would bring hope and truth and joy, Lord God. And so we know it's going to be you in us accomplishing those things. So we just thank you in advance, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, next week we will, if you want to read ahead, we'll work our way over to Luke 5, 1 through 11, as he uh, continues to raise up his people. So.